Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we look at the real strategy for producing breakthrough results, high contribution, and personally satisfying work. The last time somebody asked you how you were doing, did you answer with the word busy? Then this episode is for you. We explore why smart, capable people end up plateauing and failing. We examine the culture of busyness that has overtaken us and examine how to avoid the traps of getting overwhelmed and focusing on the wrong things. We share strategies for determining what's important, eliminating the non-essential, and making execution effortless with our guest, Greg McEwen. I believe that stepping from learning into doing is the major problem facing ambitious, smart people today. And I'm on a mission to close the learning-doing gap. My solution to this problem, something I've been cooking up for years, is the biggest announcement in the history of the science of success. All I can say right now is that something is coming and it drops on our next episode on May 31st. If you've experienced the learning-doing gap, you want to pencil in some free time on the 31st. More details are coming soon, so stay tuned on our email list. If you don't know about our email list, I'm going to tell you how to join it and why you should join it now. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide, and it's called How to Organize and Remember Everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, it's simple, it's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, you're gonna get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. You can help us vote on guests, you can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. Be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. In our previous episode, we discussed how to build self-control and self-esteem. We looked at what happens when you lose control and how to develop the strategies so that you can feel calm and collected in tough situations. We discussed the importance of having an allegiance to reality, 
shared concrete strategies for building self-esteem, discussed the relationship between pain and fulfillment, and shared a strategy for never getting angry again with our guest, Dr. David Lieberman. If you want to learn how to build real self-esteem, listen to that episode. Now for the show. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Greg McEwen. Greg is an international keynote speaker and the best-selling author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. He's spoken at events around the world, including South by Southwest, interviewing Al Gore at the World Economic Forum, where he served as a young global leader. And Greg has worked with some of the largest and most well-known companies in the world, and his work's been featured on Fox, NPR, NBC, and much more. Greg, welcome to the Science of Success. It's terrific to be with you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show. Uh, as I kind of talked about in the pre-show, I'm a tremendous fan of essentialism, and, and I think it's such an important philosophy, so I can't wait to kind of dig into it. And I'd love to start out with, you know, how do smart, capable people end up kind of plateauing or failing or becoming kind of stuck in their careers and lives? Well, there's a simple pattern that I've observed first in organizations, but then also within the individuals inside of those organizations. And it's this, that in the early days, they have a series of circumstances that lead them to a point of clarity uh, where they're doing the right things for the right reasons, for the right people, uh, the right time. It, 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 some of that's luck, but uh, some of that is, uh, is, is deliberate and intentional. But nevertheless, they find a point of clarity. And that clarity is so compelling that leads to success. Success breeds options and opportunities, which in turn, paradoxically, undermines the things that led to success because it can lead to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so in this way, you can actually have a situation where success becomes a catalyst for failure. And so this is the problem. And the, the antidote to it is the disciplined pursuit of less, or to give another term for, for this, uh, essentialism. And that's really what I uh, took the time to, to study and write and, and bring together in a way I hope is useful because what we have to do is become successful at success. It's not enough to simply uh, become successful in the first place. Success itself must be managed if people wish to break through to the next level in their lives or, of course, in organizations too. I think it's such a powerful insight and one that you know I've definitely seen in my own life. As you become more and more successful, you continue to see opportunities popping up in all of these different things. How do we start to move down that path of the disciplined pursuit of less? I think that there are really three things that must be done in a continual way, a disciplined pursuit, in fact. Um, we have to create space to explore what is essential. We need to develop the, the skills uh, to gracefully, courageously, and compassionately eliminate the non-essentials. And then we need to, thirdly, build the routines and the systems to make execution as effortless as possible. And that's a continual process. Explore, eliminate, and execute. Then again, explore, eliminate, and execute. It's it's not one more thing, and it's not something you check off and say, okay, I'm done with that, move on to the next subject. Uh, to, to my reading anyway, it's the very work of life. And so, and certainly it's the very work of success, quite literally. And, and, the, and the challenge is, is that, is that the forces of success are such that they tend to leave us off that cycle. They tend to lead us to having too little time to consider what is essential. Uh, we become reactive to all the all the many good things that are happening, but they're still just the good things. And so we can become full and cluttered in such a way that there's no longer room for us to evaluate what things we're doing. And where this gets especially complicated now is that it's not just individuals that are going through this paradox of success. It's not just individual organizations you happen to be working in a, a startup that, uh, that that's starting to experience a lot of growth and, and uh, connection in the marketplace. No, it's society and culture at large. And that's, I still maintain a good problem to have, but it is in fact a problem. So a society at large is now in a position where it has so many vast options and opportunities. So there's a, a, literally a, an exponential increase of options and opportunities. For everybody, almost everybody in, in, in developed and even in developing countries. 
So we're all now culturally in a position where our old responses are necessary but insufficient to this challenge. And so people listening to this can test it quickly. They can simply ask themselves whether they ever find themselves being stretched too thin at work or at home or beyond. Do they ever feel busy but not productive? Do they ever feel that sensation of their life being hijacked by other people's agenda or other disruptions through social media, through uh, through news updates and so on. Um, and if they say if they, if they say yes to any of those, then they are experiencing exactly the phenomenon that we're talking about. Uh, and so and so now, given that environment, this cultural environment could be doubled down upon if you happen to be working in a successful enterprise, could be doubled down upon further if you yourself have been breaking through to the next level at various points in your life up to this point. If that's the circumstance, then you have to act upon your life. You have to act upon what is going on in these deliberate ways. So now I'm going back to the beginning of this answer, which is you have to act on your life to explore what is essential. You must schedule that. Put time on the calendar for that. You must eliminate non-essentials, meaning not just eliminating the time wasters. It's not a bad place to begin, but also some of the really good things in your life, uh, some of the good opportunities, because you can't actually do everything. You might be able to do anything, but not everything. You have to act upon your life by creating routines and systems that support what you've identified as being highly important. And so that's the work. That's the work of uh, to again, to give it a phrase, to become an essentialist. And that's what I think is necessary now because of the level of challenge that we've entered. And I want to dig into, I think that's a great point. And, and I want to explore this idea of, of pursuing or kind of eliminating opportunities that are sort of good or exciting, but maybe not just right or, or amazing. But before we dig into that, I want to come back to this idea of the current sort of cultural climate around pursuing opportunities and success. And you know, I feel like there's there's so much sort of social pressure right now to constantly be saying yes, to constantly be pleasing people. How do we combat that? Well, I think the first thing to do is to appreciate the size of the change, which I still maintain for all that we have lived through it, we have underestimated the fundamental change, to use Peter Drucker's term, in the human condition that the expansion of choices has not been incremental. It ha hasn't been a 10% increase in options and opportunities. It's not even 100%. Think how dramatic that would be. But think if you went back into, let's say, uh, you know, 1800, United States 1800s, and you were to, to take uh, somebody almost certainly working in agriculture, so they're in, completely consumed with the natural processes. Now, there's a lot of work to be done, don't get me wrong, in such an environment. But if you could just take their, that day, we think about the absence of disruption that a person would have experienced. Now, they've got lots going on. But, I mean, the work to be done is largely known at the beginning of the day. Now, some things unexpected things are going to come up. But if somebody wants to disrupt your day, they must come and find you in person. <laughs> They either can send a letter. Okay, that's this is it now. They can send you a letter or they can physically be there. That's the, This is the only disruption that's coming to you. The flow of information would be compared to now so slow. Now, imagine if you were to instantly, in a, in a second, nanosecond, snap your fingers and produce for them the number of opportunities and information updates and platform of communication that we are experiencing now. And you did it instantly. Well, what would happen to that person, to that family, to that? I mean, what, what level of shock are you going to produce for them? Try to explain to them the number of options they have. They want to buy a new seed <laughs> for their agriculture. And you go, okay, well, there's literally a million different things that you can do from a million different places. There's, there's so many options. And, and, and to try and the shock would be, in my view, tremendous. And the implication of going through that story for a moment is that we have got to shift more deliberately than we're thinking we need to. And so we must become far, far more selective in what we go after. You can think about this on a continuum. You can say, okay, one to 100. Things that are one out of 100 important are not important. These are complete trivia, uh, maybe even worse than trivia. I mean, these things are taking away from things that are even basically important. They're doing you damage. They're, they're, they're destroying your discernment. You know, they're addictive behaviors in one form or another. They're, they're highly unimportant, non-essential. 
And then the other extreme, you've got 100%. I mean, these things are vital. These things would matter. If you didn't do them, they would, they, they would affect everything for the rest of your lives. They might affect intergenerationally what happens in your, uh, in your relationships, in your intergenerational family. I mean, these things will matter for 100 years. Okay, now you've got this continuum now. The challenge is that there, you know, this follows a sort of bell curve pattern where the majority of the ideas, options, opportunities, activities that we could explore are in the center. This is, this is five, 50, 60, 70 percent out of 100. These are, these are good things. You can make a case for them. Every item you think, well, that's a good thing. That's, that's useful. You might even call it a worthy cause, a worthy pursuit. But the nature of the challenge is that you cannot possibly do them all. You can't even possibly do a fraction, like no, not even 5% of the things that are in that category, not even 1%. So you have to make choices. And here's where, the, here's where it gets difficult, as if that doesn't sound difficult enough, is that my, my experience with this is that there is enough work to be done, 90% to 100 on this scale. There is enough work there to fill the rest of our lifetime. The implication of that is that any time that I am, and almost every day I am, participating in activities that are less than 90% out of 100, then I am taking something away from my essentialist life. I'm trading off something more important for something less important. And so it creates this tension, which I think is a healthy tension, that we can't just pick up an opportunity, an idea, and say, let's look at this and ask, is it a valuable thing? Is it a good thing? Is it an interesting thing? Those are good questions, but they're, they're insufficient. We have to ask instead, is this, is this the very best use of me? Is this highly important? Is this the most important thing that I can be doing right now? And to train ourselves to think like this so that at least we pause to figure out whether, in fact, this is what we should be doing. At least we pause, again, to explore, is this vital? We might still say, well, for other reasons, I'm just going to do it. We might say, well, it's important to this other person and, and, and they're quite important So to me. So, you know, it is still too expensive in unintended consequences for me to suddenly not do this. But nevertheless, we're pausing and thinking about it. Otherwise, our lives can be consumed with the trivial many instead of consumed with the vital few. So for you know somebody who's listening, who thinks to themselves, you know, I can have it all. I can do all this stuff. I can execute on all these different you know projects and priorities and multitask and achieve all these things. You know, either a listener who thinks that, or even someone who's listening who has someone like that in their lives. How do you or how would you kind of break through to them or communicate that message to them that, you know, that's just not possible? Well, I think that one answer is that this is really what I was gathering and, and trying to articulate in, in my book, Essentialism, The Discipline Pursuit of Less, was deliberately to try and gather evidence of, of the problem and also the antidote so that people could start to see what is hidden in plain sight. And this is one of the main reasons that I wrote it was to shine a light on this, to amplify the this voice in our lives. Uh, because non-essentialism is is a, a pre-existing voice. This is the default setting for our lives right now. Most people that are choosing the non-essentialist lifestyle uh, and strategy have never done that deliberately. They haven't said what I want to do is double down on doing everything that's good and max that out so that I can't even see or discern the, the vital few. I don't think people are choosing like that. So it's a default choice, a default setting. They just they just were born in this environment. We weren't born in pre-industrial age era. We were born in this environment. This is so normal. And as mnemonic animals, you know, as copiers, humans, copiers, we just watched what other people were doing. We just got on with it. We just did what they did. Maybe it, maybe it happened differently. Maybe we worked, moved into an organization and we're just going, okay, well, what are people doing? You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't pause for very long saying, well, what really matters? What's the most important work I could be doing right now? No, we just said, well, what's everyone else doing? Everyone else is busy. Everyone else is running around. Everybody else is responding to re email. Everyone's reacting. And I think there's a sort of default assumption that they must be doing that very deliberately. That is a strategic choice they've made. So, of course, if I want to move up in the organization, if I want to get ahead in my career, I ought to do what everyone else is doing. This is a do what other people are doing strategy. And so this is the norm. And we're 
unaware of the full price of doing that because everybody's doing it and because because we're in what I would describe a busyness bubble. And in all busyness bubbles, for a time, it looks like the strategy that people are pursuing is working in the short term. Results take time to show. So so just like in the real estate bubble, for a time, it looks like, well, the people who are buying five houses with no money down, those are the ones getting the advantage. So we, I've got to do the same thing. And we double down on a strategy that's actually fundamentally bad, fundamentally false. Non-essentialism, which is the undisciplined pursuit of more, this idea that if I can shove it all into my schedule, fit it all, and I can have it all, has only one inconvenient element to it, and that's based on a lie. It's based on false assumptions. It's just Actually, the research doesn't support it at all. This is a non-scientific position. This is, this is non-credible. This is a fact-free position. But it has been sold to us, and it's been sold so incessantly, and it's become a factor of our culture to the extent that people are living this way, as I said, in a default way. So I think the first thing to do is to, in a sense, you know, it's to name non-essentialism and to shine a light on it, to ask ourselves, is it producing the reward it promises? Is it producing, is non-essentialism, this pursuit of trying to do everything for everybody without really thinking about it, is that strategy producing breakthrough results high contribution, personally satisfying and great contribution to others, and really highly meaningful relationship with the people that matter most. Is it producing that? If it's producing that, if non-essentialism is producing that for you, for the person listening, then I suggest continuing it. <laughs> you know, forget everything I'm saying. If it produces what it's promising, then keep going. In fact, I might even say a little tongue in cheek here uh, to double down on it. You know, sleep less. Don't sleep at all. In fact, do everything that everyone's doing. Do everything that you see people doing on social media. I mean, do it all. Double down on the strategy. See if it continues to produce what is what is promised. What I think people will find, I think there's few, in fact, very few people that will argue this point. There's not much organ rejection of this, that, that non-essentialism does not give what it says it will give. Just because it's been sold doesn't mean it's real. Just because it's continually sold doesn't make it more real. I was just talking to somebody just the other day. How are you? I said, you see, when I first came to America, by the way, if you ask people how they're doing, what they said is good or great, fine. It took longer, certainly in the last 10 years, when you ask people how they're doing now, they say busy. How are you doing? Busy. And there's, there's all, in fact, there's all flavors of busy. Oh, I'm busy, busy. Great, but busy. I'm super, super, super busy, but super great. <laughs> there's all flavors of this. And this, this woman I was speaking to, she said, um, oh, Greg, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I've slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks. That's how busy I am. She's smiling. Why is she smiling? I think that she was boasting. That's what I think. She didn't say it, but I think she was saying, Greg, I hate to break it to you. I'm just a little more, more important than you are. I slept on average only four hours a day because I'm under such great demand. You see, that's culture speaking. That's her believing this is an evidence itself of success. You boast because busyness is a value. In a, in a busyness bubble, busyness is a value. It's become a value. It doesn't mean it's real, but that's what people are, are buying into. It's an overvalued asset, just like the real estate was in the real estate bubble. So let's look at the science behind it. Is it true? I mean, it is, is it true that if you sleep less, that you increase your productivity? Does one hour less sleep, as she seems to be implying, equal one hour more productivity? I mean, I know of no greater scientific lie than that, cultural lie than that. I mean, if you sleep, you know, we'd never say, would we? We would never say this employee over here, absolutely marvelous, the way they, uh, the way they make decisions drunk all the time. They're drunk, it's marvelous. The, the quality of their decision making, marvelous when they're inebriated like that. We would never say that sort of thing. And yet the science shows that we are physic physiologically and psychologically the same as when we're drunk, when we're sleeping four hours a night. Notwithstanding this total hero fallacy that if you're sleeping four hours a night, that's what it means. That's, that's, that's the uber woman. That's the Superman. I mean, that is not the, that is totally, utterly non-scientific position. Uh, Eric Anderson, who, of course, was studied high, top, you know, top performance. This is the same study that Malcolm Gladwell popularized in Outliers, uh, calling it the 10,000-hour rule. The 10,000-hour rule was basically, look, within, I mean, this is oversimplification of the underlying research, but basically says that if, if you want to master something, you spend more hours doing it. You, you sort of approximately 10,000 hours to become an exceptional pianist, violinist exceptional in a variety of areas. Now, if you look back at the research, as I have, so not American Gladwell's work on it, but the actual underlying research, what you find is that the second most highly correlated item to distinguish top performers from good performers, that is 
to say what what is the second most biggest the biggest single difference between good performance and highest performance is the number of hours of sleep they got. Who would guess this? Who would select this in an environment where where sleep is easy? Like, give it up. You're going to be productive. It's about how much you do. It's how much you step in. It's how much how busy you are. And how many hours of sleep was the second highest correlated item? The, the highest performers were getting eight and a half hours sleep on average in every 24-hour period. That means they were sleeping more at night and more naps than their average performing counterparts, even the good performers. And so exceptional performance is correlated with sleep. Now, that's just one illustration. It's a, Essentialism isn't about sleep. It's about discerning what matters. It means eliminating what doesn't. It means building a system to support those things. But it's an illustration because sleep is critical, vital for discernment. If you want to discern between the vital many and the trivial, the vital few and the trivial many, you've got to sleep. It's not the only thing. It's not sufficient. But you've got to sleep because then you'll start to be able to discern it. And if people aren't sleeping, then they're not going to be sustainably top performers. They're just burning out their ability to prioritize in order for a short-term win in some uh, instant, you know, instant increase in productivity, you know, for, for just a moment on some project and so on. That's fine. Maybe you can do it for a couple of days like this, but it very quickly discernment goes down to the point that you'll be working on the wrong things. You make your lists, all the things to do, you'll start working on them, but you're working on the wrong things. And that's where essentialism really comes in because it's not about doing more things. It's not about doing more things. It's doing more of the right things. That, to me, is what essentialism is, and that's key to thriving and breaking through to the highest point of contribution in today's environment. It's all about your ability to discern what should be done at all, not just busily jumping into the work of doing. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. 
Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So let's dig in. I mean, I think that was a great example. And, and sleep is obviously so important, you know, for, for listeners who want to dig into that more. We have an incredible interview with Dr. Matthew Walker, who's one of the world's top sleep experts, where we go super deep into sleep and strategies for it and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, but before we kind of, you know, dig into some of the strategies for determining what's essential and figuring that out, I really want to dig into how do we break out of this culture that says, you know, oh, it's more important to be busy. Oh, I constantly want to be kind of putting that that front on. And, and maybe a specific kind of contextualization of this is, let's say we have a boss who constantly kind of comes up with non-essential projects and distractions and, and wants you to constantly be focused on those and working on them. Well, I think the first thing to do is to build your essentialist muscles in the things that you can control. So even though you gave me a perfectly reasonable situation, I still want to remind people to start where they, they, they you know, build a routine around the first hour of your morning. That right now, if, if you're reaching for your phone first, you're giving up a lot of power, not only to this hypothetical boss, but to, to many other things and influences in your life. So in this way, you can drip by drip, give up power to other people uh, to the point that they really are dictating the prioritization of your whole life, not just of this particular interaction or a series of requests that a boss might make for projects that you think maybe aren't the most useful, valuable uh, way to spend your time and, and resources. So I think it's a non-trivial point to raise is that first, first, build habits and routines around the things you ought to be able to control. If you don't do that in an environment that we have right now, this boss scenario can be in charge of your whole life. And, and I don't mean that. Uh, that's not even hypothetically. I was, in a, I was at an event a while ago, and the executive in question was talking, taking questions, globally recognized CEO, and they're talking about work-life balance. And they just said, oh, yeah, I, I just uh, – I have none. They said I spent uh, – I, I just gave that up. 20 years. I just, I just decided I wouldn't see my family for 20 years. I mean, they are saying this. I thought it was in a sense refreshing because at least they're being, at least they're being real. And, uh, and somebody said, well, what about the people you work with? And they said, oh yeah, everybody bleeds blue, just like me. They said, if I call my, if I take email, not call, if I email my assistant at three in the morning, they respond to me by 3.03. And then they did this. They said, isn't that right? And they point to the back of the room. There's about 50 of us in the room and all heads turn like, who are they talking to? And, and their assistant's right there. <laughs> what is the assistant going to say? Uh, yes, that's what I do. Yep. That's what, and we're all going, my goodness, this is, is this really heavy? Is this is this being established as like the norm in the organization that, that this person has so little control of their time and space that any time belongs to the institution? So this is why I'm saying I think that the place to begin is where it is reasonable and sensible and perfectly right for a person to have control and start there so that you build buffer into your life and protection. Uh, for, for an excellent uh, analysis of, of exactly what I'm describing here, uh, you can look at um, a book that, uh, that I really like that's come out recently called Great at Work, which is a study of 5,000 workers in trying to, dis to identify the, the tactics and strategies that distinguish the top performers from the good performers. It's a sort of good to great uh, for individual employees. And he finds that the top performers – this is the principle. It's a very essentialist principle. It says, uh, first, less than obsessed. They identify what fewer things to pursue and go big on and then obsess over them so they get them done well and, and, and superbly well. And then he also found, though he didn't originally go out to study this, he also found that that strategy at work also bled over and resulted in better work-life balance. So this mindset, and this is my words now, the essentialist mindset, if you adopt it, if you implement it, personally and professionally, both areas can win. This is the value proposition of essentialism. In fact, you can end up doing more important work at work and also have better boundaries and better work to be able to do work in your personal life and to be more focused there as well. So that's, that's what this new research supports. That's what it shows. Now, all of that is context for the question you actually asked, and I don't want to miss the answer of it. 
The answer is, in that scenario, to begin a process in that, in that moment, maybe all you can do in that moment is, is, is produce a tiny pause. Depends how bad the situation is. Depends how, how non-essentialist the boss is, the, how non-essentialist the culture is at your team and your work and so on. But at first, you might just be able to create a pause and just go, hey, listen, of course, I'm happy to do you know, you know, whatever you'd like to ask, but can we just ch- talk about this for just a second? You know, is this the most important project uh, you know, that, that, that we have? Or can we just look at all the different projects that you've asked me to do and let's just look at them and just prioritize them? Actually, I've already done that. Here's, here's what I think you would say is the most important things. Can, can we talk about this? Let's validate this. And, and then let's talk just a little more. Let's just say, is the, is, the, is the project that you just talked about, is that more important than this item that's, you know, number one, number two, that's on this list? Because I think I could do a superb job at number one and number two, but I don't think I can do a superb job at all of these five, six, seven, whatever number projects. So I just want to talk about that and let's let's understand what the, the best use of time and resources is. I mean, I think that's in the short term something that can be done. I've done that personally, specifically had that conversation. In, in my case, it, it went well. The uh, My file leader said, uh, said, oh, no, okay, the most important job is this. That's definitely the one I want you to focus on. Let, let me come back to you in a bit and, uh, and we'll, 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 we'll organize this to make sure you have sufficient time for that. I ended up having a full year focused on that single uh, initiative and it was very successful and it was simply wouldn't have been if I'd had to spread all my resources around uh, across five different projects as it would have happened if I just reactively said yes. So I'm not advocating that you reactively say no to people, that you just, uh, without thinking about it, start saying no to your boss, your boss's boss. No, this could be very career-limiting move. But I do think if you want to go from being a, a, an order taker, an overwhelmed order taker, I might say, to a trusted advisor, then you have to pause. And you have to pause in the conversation. And you need to be able to bring the reality of trade-offs and the reality of essentialism into the conversation. And if you want to pause a little longer than that, if you're able to, depending on the, on the relationship, you might actually say, look, I've been reading this book, this essentialism, you should read it, let's have the team read it. Because what will happen if you do that? I've, well, I've, this is based on like, uh, you know, the practical practitioner work of implementing these ideas in organizations is that is that the more people that are reading this together, it means that people start to it's almost like wake up from this sort of odd non-essentialist dream in which they believed or at least pretended to believe that they could actually do everything. And once you sort of wake up from that, you go, oh my goodness, well we're not having the right conversation or we're not working on the right things. Let's work out together what the right things are. And suddenly you can actually have a whole culture shift. And it can be incredibly profitable for an institution, incredibly good for people's work-life balance as they actually create an essentialist culture because they're able to have an essentialist conversation. So a corollary of that that I want to dig into, and I know it's something you've, you've written and talked a lot about, and it's a whole chapter in the book. And this is something personally I struggle with, which is why I'm curious. How do we say no to people in sort of a, a graceful way? And especially for somebody, you know, somebody like me, I'm a people pleaser and I always want to kind of say yes and go with kind of the, the easy sort of short-term feeling of, of making somebody happy or saying yes to their commitment. How do we kind of build that muscle and that ability to say no? Or how do we say no in the right way? Well, the first thing I want to say, even though I definitely write about in the book, Graceful No's and so on, is that I didn't write a book called Noism. And, and I've learned I have to emphasize that because otherwise it's sort of so emotionally charged for people, the idea of saying no, it's almost the only thing they hear. Oh my goodness, I got to start omitting everything. Uh, that's going to be that so damaging. I'm so scared of doing that. They either don't do it or they do do it. And then that causes a can can cause problems. But the key is to have conversations with people about what is essential. The, the key is to, is, is to get the conversation being about that. What's the most important thing that we could be doing? Uh, so that that is what gives drive, gives courage, and it also helps us to balance the compassion necessary to be able to say as often as possible together, well, of course, if we're going to do these things, then that thing can't be done. It's just there's, there's not room for it, not resources for it. We want to do what we're doing and do it well. And so as, as far as you can, the, the, most graceful, the most graceful no is, in fact, saying yes to something more important. And if you can do that together with somebody, then, then in fact, the, the no doesn't feel like the emotionally charged no that we often associate with a sort of uh, three-year-old saying no. To their parent, you know, the thirteen-year-old saying no as a teenager to their parent. Really, these these are quite unattractive social interactions, and that's our experience with no. And so, I think the 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 best no is actually this yes that I'm describing. Yes to a bigger yes. Yes to a more essential yes. I think the second thing to realize is that is it where we can help people, of course, 
we do have an obligation to help people. We want to make a contribution. This isn't selfishism. This is contribution that we're trying to make, our highest contribution. So I, I do find in my own life, to, to use uh, from, from Adam Grant's research, Adam's a friend of mine, and, and his book, um, Give and Take, one of my favorite ideas there and something that he and I share commitment to is the idea of uh, five-minute favors. If you can do something within five minutes for somebody, uh, it's good to do it. <laughs> Especially if it's something that you uniquely can do for somebody and it's a, it's a particular help for them. But what, what I would call maybe uh, disciplined giving, I and mean, essentialism is about a disciplined pursuit of what's essential. And so there's a place for disciplined generosity and disciplined giving. But where his research and mine overlaps and supports each other is that if you have undisciplined giving, even undisciplined service, for how even for how tremendously positive I feel about service, I think that's uh, life should be service. But if it becomes undisciplined, reactive, if it becomes that, then it can actually it can in some cases do damage. If we're doing for people things that they really can do for themselves, it can it can create scenarios where we're actually breeding a problem, not solving it, and not helping people to become self-reliant as we ought to. So I think that the answer, as I say, is to is to find, you know, to discuss together, to counsel together in order to figure out what the yes should be and therefore what the trade-off should be. I think that go beyond that to say, okay, how can I give these five-minute favors? How can I help in a disciplined way? But then, of course, there are circumstances, finally now, uh, where the answer needs to be no and should be no and can be no. I would love to do that. Thanks for thinking of me for various reasons. I, I won't be able to, um, but uh, maybe next time. Uh, you can say, especially where you have a lot of influence, a lot of control in the situation, Oh, let me take a rain check on that. I'd love to get back to you, but not not possible. Uh, for, a friend of mine once wondered, texted me, wondered whether I'd like to train together for a for a marathon. Thought about it. Uh, responded, uh, nope. <laughs> and then it made him laugh, and, and that was the end of that. You, you don't have to do it just because it's a good thing. No way that my life should, I would have been trading off uh, far more important things to just start training for that, given the other things I was already committed to. There are circumstances where simply a no is fine, especially if you've built the relationship over time so it can sustain it. But you want to be in relationships and to be in habits with people that are sustainable. Otherwise, you're already out. It's already over. Just not yet. I mean, in unsustainable relationships, personally or professionally, are already over in anything like the long run. By, by definition, they're unsustainable. They cannot be perpetuated. So you, you need to get to the place where they are, they, they are healthy, that you can give and take, that you can say no, that they can say no. Otherwise, otherwise the relationship is already fraught with a fundamental weakness in it and the fault in the fault in the relationship will uh, eventually undermine everything else in the relationship so i think this is why highly mature relationships balance this courage and compassion and being able to negotiate the no in a way that potentially can even build the relationship over time i think you raised a really really critical point too which which is to me one of the cornerstones of understanding essentialism is that it's not about being selfish. It's it's about commitment and it's about creating the biggest possible impact and creating results. And, and the reality is, and the research shows, that the best possible way to create the biggest impact, create the most results, is to focus on less and do a really good job of it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's sort of two ways of thinking about essentialism. One, to use Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you can think about it as he originally might have suggested we do at the highest level of the pyramid you know we're all familiar with it i'm sure the highest point was uh, self self-actualization and sometimes when people read essentialism they read it from that lens okay like, hey, this is about self-actualization this is just about what is going to maximize my uh, my benefit in life my my pursuits in life maybe even my you know sort of first degree happiness in life but towards the end of Maslow's life, he changed it, but not in time for the books that, you know, that had already published the pyramid as he had written about it earlier on in his life. In the end, he changed it, and it changed it to self-transcendence, that, that he believed there was a higher need than self-actualization. And that's just exactly how I feel about essentialism, that if you read it from a self-actualization perspective, then I think it can deteriorate into a sense of, well, this matters to me, it doesn't you, too bad, I'm doing it, you know, and what, you know, whatever the consequences are, let them be. I think that it's a much wiser perspective to take, and in fact, the one that I intended in writing it, that this is about your highest contribution. It's inherently self-transcendent. It's about saying What's more important than your own ego, own pride, own own short-termism? You know, that's the breeding ground for much of the non-essential activity of our lives, in fact. 
that we're just trying to compete with our you know our neighbors with our uh, keeping up appearances uh, you know the, this kind of ego driven activity is in fact totally non essential won't pass the test 100 years from now it'll be worth nothing at all just total distraction from from what actually mattered might not take 100 years might be 2 weeks from now we'll notice that this wasn't important work the, the, the whole lens of essentialism, I believe, is self-transcending. But that's a lot of that is in the is in the eye of the beholder. The reader must decide how they're viewing what's on the page. And if they're caught up in the idea of self-actualization, as I think a lot of people can un- unintentionally be in the peak performance culture, then they, they'll read it in a certain way and apply it in a certain way. And so I always want to emphasize this now that, that it's it's about difference making. It's about how do you have the maximum impact for good, and that that's meaningful. Uh, and, and one of the, the tests I just illustrated a moment ago, but I, it's it's one I didn't write in the sentence, but I really believe it. I think there's a lot more work that could be could be done. I think I will do it. Is is around this hundred year frame uh, that that says that breaks the paradigm that I think has many of us controlled. And the paradigm that has many of us controlled is what I now call birth or death thinking. Uh, so beated the thinking, right? Which is that that we're saying, even these questions we're talking about, even the idea of making a contribution, if you think about it from birth till death, you're going, okay, what's the best use of me in my life? And then it grows into what we think of as the, as, as the, most, as the most enlightened view, which is what's the legacy that I'm going to leave? But I think all of that is slave to the same basic par- paradigm. Even legacy thinking, I think, still, it's like stretches, but doesn't break the bounds of the, of the birth or death thinking. And here's where birth or death thinking is such, a, is such an inhibitor. It stops us from seeing our lives in anything like the right perspective. And so it, it clouds and, and twists all other evaluations of our lives, as if we are the great story of humanity. It's me. It's Craig McEwen. It's I'm at the center of this story. I mean, like I'm at the center of this story. It's absurd. It's absurdism to believe that. I mean, a hundred years ago, no one's thinking about me. hundred years from now, no one will remember my name. My great-grandchildren won't remember my name. I mean, if, if history is to be believed, because most people listening to this will not be able to even name the first and last names of all eight of their great-grandparents. Won't even name them. So if you can't remember, remember the names, you don't know much about them. And that's what's going to be true for us. But that's not a depressing thought to me, because that's only depressing if you believe in birth till death thinking, if you think that's the right frame. But I think if you want to break through to discerning really what's essential in this higher 90th percentile area, if you're trying to discern between things that are really good and things that are actually essential, then you say, what will matter when I'm no longer in the picture? That's why 100 years is such an important number. We won't be here. But our impact will still flow from us. The, the impact of doing or not doing any number of things will be immense to us 100 years from now. The people that come afterwards will still be impacted by us. Impact will outlast memory. And this is just a thought experiment, I suppose, at this point. But it's an important one as people try to work out what really is essential. What's just good? What's non-essential? I recommend if you ask that question, that test, a hundred year question, what will really matter hundred years from now? If you do it every 90 days, you ask that question in a personal quarterly offsite, you're doing tremendous good in being able to actually transcend the self-actualization model. You start to go, okay, it's not about me. So therefore what matters? Not what matters in my little world, not what matters in my part of the story. I'm just a little verse in the great narrative, intergenerational narrative I'm a part of. It's a much humbler and more empowering perspective than to be subconsciously but constantly uh, consumed with the idea of how I fit in to the big story and it be about me. That's a very relieving place to get to. And I think that this sort of perspective, as I say, goes beyond what I wrote in the book, helps to elevate the subject and helps to say, maybe somebody listening to this is going, okay, yeah, this is a bit heady, this is a bit big for me. I'm, uh, you know, I, I just got to <laughs> got to pay the bills to figure out the next thing. But it's not just a first world problem to think like this. This is what we need to do to be able to not waste our lives. So paradoxically, if you don't want to waste your life, you have to think about the world without your life being there. And as you sort of forget, as you turn down the volume of me in my story, then I start to be able to discover actually a higher, truer contribution. And I can start to eliminate more and more of who I really am not and more and more of what just doesn't even matter and so that more and more of the real self can actually come forward. So it's a paradox because as you sort of get rid of, you lose these, these scales of non-essential self, you actually become your truer self. 
you're no longer in the game of competition and comparison. It just consumes us, uses up so much of our time and energy and resources. You just get to be in the business of uh, contribution, of making of making a difference. I think this is what Gandhi did in India. I think that he he became an essentialist because he became consumed with thinking about the other. What would happen in his country after him? I mean, he became the father of India without ever holding any political position. It's extraordinary. How did he do it? I was in South Africa where he lived for 23 years where he was first beginning his civil rights work. Uh, he took on the South African government. It was successful. It took him a long time. But I was, was there for a speaking at an event, and I went to the Phoenix Settlement where he lived for those 23 years, and I was given a poem. First of all, it was the only poem that he ever told. It was the only poem he ever wrote. And in it, I found these words. Think of these words. Reducing oneself to zero. And that's what he did. That's what it was all about for him. He reduced himself to zero. What what took his place? It wasn't an nihilistic point of view. It wasn't like nothing matters. It was that is that a very few things matter. In his case, a singular purpose. A singular purpose bring independence to the largest democracy in the world. That was what it was about. Not about him. In fact, he was able to rid everything from his life. He eliminated all the stuff, all the clutter, physical clutter from his life. Died with only ten items to his name. I mean, that was a really deliberate choice. He could have made a very different choice. He wanted to be so singularly focused on purpose. What would really? What was he built? What was he? What? What did he have to contribute? He wasn't. Didn't have to be so consumed in himself anymore. His own story anymore. He's liberated from all that non-essentialist junk. Reduce himself to zero. That he became consumed with purpose. That takes so much humility. But what a gift humility can be. I mean, pride and ego is not our friend. <laughs> It just clouds our judgment, clouds our activity so deeply. When when Gandhi died, the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, General Marshall, he said, here's a man who said that shown that humility and simple truth is more powerful than empires. What a thing to say. What a thing to say that that much power, that much contribution, that much impact comes from that source, humility and simple truth. Think of it. Compare that to the nonsense of self-actualization that says it's all about the stuff. It's all about you know, what you've succeeded, what you've gained, what you've won and what you've got, how you can demonstrate that. It's a totally different game. It's a completely different game. And he was playing by those rules by the time that he died. Einstein said of Gandhi, he said, the generations to come will scarce believe that such a one as this ever in flesh and blood walked upon this earth. It was just essentialism. It just applied essentialism until it consumed him. The endless disciplined pursuit, he called it my experiments with truth, but he might have called it my experiments with essentialism. The endless pursuit of the elimination of all the things that weren't actually adding to the purpose of his life. There's a story almost nobody knows about, but I interviewed his grandson who told me about it. Aaron Gandhi, he said uh, he said it was Aaron was living in South Africa when Gandhi was his grandfather's back in India doing all this experimentation, taking on the British government in the way that he did. Aaron was, was beaten up as a teenager for being too black because it was still in the middle of apartheid there. And and then uh, later, by a different group, being too white. You can really imagine how angry that would leave a youth, and it left him really angry. And his grandfather said, come and live with me. And so in the midst of all of this noise, and you can see that this comes out of a perspective, a sort of not-about-me perspective, self-transcendent perspective, that he said, uh, come and live with me. Uh, I'll, I'll make time for this. i got heads of state wanting a piece of me, but I, 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 I can discern by this point in my life that something's matter for a long time and something's don't, and this is something that matters. So he went and lived with his grandfather. Aaron told me he listened to me for an hour a day for a year and a half. That is really, uh, that's a, that, is, that is essentialism in practice right there. Be able to discern that, to be able to sense this matters, this will matter. A hundred years from now, this will really matter. Well, it's not been quite a hundred years yet. But tremendous part of Gandhi's legacy is is being impacted by his grandson, who started the nonviolent institute for uh, of Mohandas K. Gandhi. This is he's gone on to continue that legacy, you know, the highest form of it. And maybe more important than any of that, he just said he said his whole life was transformed, changed by being listened to and affirmed in that way. This is all just to say that we're not supposed to be Gandhi. That's not the point of that exercise, that, that story, that example. But what it looks like. What it can look like if we allow this to not be one more thing, not one more podcast we're listening to right now, not just one more, oh yeah, I should remember that too. But we, we say this could become the thrust of my life. I could actually change at the core to believe that the most important thing to do is to figure out what the most important thing is to do and to do it. And that that could become the core of our life to pursue what's essential and eliminate what's not. That's the idea. And we can start in small ways, of course, this is the only way to start any kind of change, small ways, but the mindset shift can happen, the heart set shift can change so that we actually spend the totality of our life pursuing and executing on what matters most to us instead of 
the majority of our life reacting to the non-essential stuff and only occasionally remembering that the most important stuff is not getting done. That shift can happen. That shift can happen. I've seen it happen for people. I've seen it continually changing me. I'm off track still many, many, many times every day, but I've seen the shift happen for me and I've seen it happen for other people. So the data is there and people have a choice to make it. I don't think they'll ever regret choosing to become an essentialist. What a powerful example and then really showcases the what can happen when you when you push this idea and take it to the extreme, the incredible impact that it can have. You know, I'm curious, and you touched on this a little bit, talking about kind of the power of small wins and and how that's really the only way to get started. For listeners who want to implement essentialism into their lives, what's kind of a concrete way to to get started or to kind of determine what is essential, you know, their routines or strategies that they could implement to begin down this journey. I developed a 21-day essentialism challenge that uh, that you can make um, available to you uh, as a download as part of this podcast if you'd like, that really gives a, a series of very small changes that people can start to make uh, to, towards this end. Uh, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, among them uh, is 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 beginning a very tiny uh, but daily reflection uh, in a journal. My I had two grandfathers, as all of us do, and one of them, when he died, I was struck by how nothing, how very little at least, seemed to leave behind of who he was. That that I was surprised by how little I knew about him, even though I talked to him many times and and taken the time I thought to know him. But so much of it, once he died, I thought. My goodness, I don't even, I'm not even sure I can tell you who like his best friends were. So much of that was just in his own mind, and I just took for granted. But as soon as he's gone, he takes it with him. And my other grandfather, right before he passed away, I was thinking, reflecting on the same thing. But he gave me a copy of the journal that he'd been writing. He'd written just one or two sentences every two or three days for 50 years. One journal, one book. How much more I knew, how much more I could connect the dots because of that. And that's something I would recommend people do to start to implement these different things we're saying. Every day, one sentence. Don't write five pages. <laughs> In fact, for like at least 90 days, you're not allowed to write more than one sentence. But you write it every single day, no matter how late it is, no matter how early you're getting up the next morning, you write one sentence. And at first, I don't even care what it is that you write. Over time, this will evolve. Over time, you might write what's the most important thing that I learned today, what's the most important memory I think I'd like to have. Maybe you would write some days, what's the most important decision I've made today? You know, suddenly you you can use that tiny increment to add something more and more valuable. But at first, it's just a habit. Over time, I mean, I I decided to do this. I've been journaling for 20 years now, more. But over seven years ago, I decided I just no longer want to miss a single day. I haven't since then. As far as I can recall, I haven't missed one day since then. And now I write a lot more. And I've developed a whole process for what I write and what I reflect. I use my planning as well, most days. And I have a whole process for what to do. But the, the, the magic of pen and pa- paper and having a reflection is my favorite tool, is my favorite technology. And I think that the habit will open up a whole world of value for people because of precisely what a journal can't do as well as what it can do. It just can't distract you in the way that technology does and can. That's a huge bonus in this environment. So that's one thing I would really encourage people to do. And where can listeners find you and your work online? You know, they just they can go to gregmcewen.com and they can find me on social media and so on and just keep continuing this to, to this journey together. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing that powerful story about Gandhi, but also all of the the lessons of essentialism. You know, as I said, I, I really think it's a fundamentally important strategy and, and tool and something that I, I think about a lot and structure my days around. And I'm so glad that we were able to have you on the show to share all of this knowledge and wisdom. Matt, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.